You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Down to the wire, the Honolulu Star Advertiser and the Pacific Media Workers Guild reached an agreement Saturday that includes voluntary layoffs and furloughs, 12 newsroom positions, which include graphic artists, photographers, online news, and reporters, will be cut from the staff. Guild members agreed to defer a 1% pay raise and will give up half of their vacation days. There will be no layoffs until the end of the fiscal year on February 28, 2021. The agreement comes after the paper initially sent pink slips to 31 workers. Jolena Shiro, a reporter and co-chair of the Guild's bargaining unit, said its goal has always been to preserve as many jobs as possible. We're always pushing furloughs instead of layoffs so we could try to help the company achieve good cost savings and keep the jobs of our members. And as things went along, it became clear that some people were willing to take layoffs and the company wanted layoffs. So uh, we went with that and then the goal became trying to prevent involuntary layoffs. And so because we could arrive at that um, with, you know, 12 voluntary layoffs, we thought it was something that we could live with, even though it's tremendously hard to see those people go. We've lost people who have been employees for the company for decades. And all the people who were not on the layoff list decided that they would volunteer to layoff just so, um, so they could save the job of someone else. And so it's, it's really been a testament to our members if there's anything about this really painful process, it's that we found out that we have a really um, caring and, and united community, people who are willing to step up for each other. And so we have no words to say thank you to these people. Their uh, generosity and caring and commitment to the group is just astounding. That was Jolene Oshiro, a reporter and co-chair of the Guild's bargaining unit. We also talked to Chris Bear of Media Council Hawaii. He reflected on the changes to our local media landscape over the years. At a time when we have one of the most important elections facing the country, and during the time of this COVID epidemic, pandemic, we need good information more than ever. And in Hawaii, and of course, actually across the country, but in Hawaii in particular, we are absolutely losing journalists. We are losing journalism. Uh, the bottom line seems to be controlling some of these decisions, and it's not even clear if they're necessary. Um, but what is necessary is that we have journalists out there digging into what's happening and informing the public so the public can make good decisions about how they vote, about how they conduct their lives, and what they know about our community. And uh, with this latest news, if you want to call it news, from the, the uh, Star Advertiser, it's even worse because they're threatening to, to lay off or are laying off um, about half of their newsroom. That means fewer people reporting, less information that we get, and it's really, it's really a disaster, especially following the whole situation we had with uh, television news when Mr. Blangiardi uh, basically combined KHNL, K5, and KGMB, created Hawaii News Now, and in the process laid off uh, one whole newsroom. And then we have the situation that happened at KITV with mass layoffs there, and on and on and on. So basically we're losing people that we need to know, that we need to have working so we know what's going on in our community. And it was bad when, when we lost two papers. Well, you go all the way, and then you go back farther, right, and we actually have one paper instead of two. So actually starting in 2003, there was an attempt to merge KHON and KGMB, and that fell through fortunately when the owners of those stations at that time decided to get out of the TV business. And so that was put on hold, but Mr. Blangiardi was undaunted and went ahead and got to merge major, you know, three major stations here, two network stations, and created Hawaii News Now, laid off a bunch more people. So we have had really bad news, 
and no news for some time. The, the newspaper did this just a couple of years ago where there were layoffs, buyouts, and stalled you know, contracts with the remaining journalists. So it seems to me this is just my view is they're using the pandemic as an excuse to do what they wanted to do all along, which basically was to cut staff, create greater profits, and to, uh, you know, take care of the executives and the owners, not the workers. The newspaper is rather thin these days. I can memorize it in the morning. And it's hard because I still, like many others, go out to get my newspaper on Saturday morning. So that, that's been a real adjustment, not having Oh, I hate meeting. it. I get up on Saturday morning, and I, you know, I think I'm going to at least whatever tiny little newspaper there is, it isn't there anymore. The shrinking of our, of our pool of journalists here in the islands, I mean, what does that say, you know, when you look across the country? Well, the same things are happening across the country. I mean, we have, there's a couple of bright spots. The Washington Post has been fairly successful in adding staff rather than decreasing. But many, many stories across the country have to do with basically, uh, you know, financial groups buying newspapers, cutting the staff to the bone and trying to make some profit, but not by doing news, but by just handing out whatever they can information about just things you need to know about your school board, about zoning, about uh, taxes, about all of those things. It's really hard to find. And if you're going to be an intelligent participant in democracy, you need information. So basically, this diminishes democracy as well as journalism and, of course, the lives of media workers who are being laid off and, uh, you know, who knows? where they'll end up. That was Chris Conybear of the Media Council Hawaii. We also reached out to the Pointner Institute. Media business analyst Rick Edmonds talked to us this morning from Florida about national media trends. It's very threatening and things, trends were, financial trends were not good for the, the COVID-19 and that's it's advertising very hard. Print advertising, I think many places, is down 40 to 50 percent uh, compared to what it was a year ago. These cuts uh, here locally, I know we are losing some veteran people. They've got the institutional memory. Um, you know, they know this town. And so right. that's always very difficult to see. Yeah, and I think that's been, unfortunately, kind of also almost like a practice since uh, the need for cuts began uh, 10 years or so ago after, after the recession, which is that uh, uh, despite all of what you just said, the loss of memory, loss of some very talented people with, with good following sometimes in their columnists, to get the money that they're trying to get out, you know, and to, in some sense trading older, more experienced people for younger and less less expensive people is not much comfort, but it's it's happening all over. And what about the, the technology? I mean, I know here they stopped issuing a, a, a Saturday paper. It's that's online. The papers that are, are left are very thin, and that's one of the arguments in favor of potentially deleting a day or two uh, a week. But uh, yes, that's a trend. It is gaining some momentum, and I think we'll see quite a lot more, you know, maybe eventually to, to having a Sunday paper and having uh, the rest of the week be online. I mean, that's not like next week or even next year, but I, I think that's where it's headed. The paper that's associated with us, the Tampa Bay Times, has always had a very strong print presence, but at least for the duration of the pandemic and the recession, they're doing only two days a week, Wednesdays and Sundays. Uh, but they're trying to see if people will accept, and there are some other efforts in this line, uh, an e-edition, which is a replica of the paper format as a not not best but acceptable substitute. And I, I just wrote about it. It's kind of interesting because I think that what people like about print is not just that it's the paper you hold in your hand, but that it's well organized, that it, you kind of have one stop for the day, and once you complete it, you complete it. And uh, websites a lot of times aren't, aren't very user-friendly, and uh, you always kind of have a feeling you didn't get to the end of it or you missed something and they put it away in a dark corner before you found it. And everybody's been, you know, experimenting with business models. Right. Not everything you see uh, online is, you know, what you have in your hand in a morning paper. Well, that's right. And there, there, there are a fair amount of difference in the advertising, the kinds of advertising. To some extent, I guess I would say the industry hasn't been especially disciplined about a user experience because there can be a flutter of ads and some of these rather 
dubious taste, programmatic ads, and the most intrusive things like drop-downs and autoplays. So different kinds of advertising, not necessarily a, a plus, except, I mean, of course, they do generate some revenue at a time when these organizations are, are hungry for revenue. And because of this COVID crisis, you know, we're seeing people's habits change, you know, people are being forced to order online and have their groceries delivered. And, you know, you wonder, you know, what does that mean for the grocery stores that normally would advertise and put coupons in the newspaper? Well, grocery stores, um, at at least uh, here and I I think other places may be cutting back some, but they do continue to advertise. And there are a few other kinds of services, um, home repairs, uh, furnishing some of that. I mean, people who do have some money are, are kind of using this extra time to catch up but but overall the advertising is is depressed and you know their whole categories travel etc that just are dead in the water and they're not going to advertise until they are, are a little bit more fully open so there's the kind of the short term you know as the economy bounces back you might see then more people willing to put their advertising dollars with the newspaper or you know with broadcast right. Right, and there's a uh, there, this is a, I don't know that I've seen a measurement of it, but there has been some volume of advertising, uh, corporate advertising, you know, sort of in well, in, in the case of uh, hospitals and health organizations, it's kind of a time when people are are looking at that especially. But corporate messages, you know, kind of addressing the pandemic issue and corporate responsibility. So. I'm not going to say that's replacing what's what's gone, but it's a little bit encouraging. What other trends uh, are there out there that you're seeing? Well, we uh, spoke a minute ago about e-editions, but I would also say that the e-edition is a form of digital, and uh, we have seen a very big increase in pushing for paid digital subscriptions. That's been a huge success for the New York Times and, and uh, to some extent for other national papers like Washington Post. It's a harder sell for a local paper, and, you know, it's... it's <laughs> It's harder to ask people to pay for, say, a digital print combination when there's not quite as much local news. In. There is the, the, the big trend that uh, it's been continuing and will continue that advertising shrinks and that uh, news operations is going to be, need to be sustained by the readers. Again, of course, in the public radio sphere, you have a tradition of memberships and voluntary support, and that's, that's just fine, but it can't be, uh, can't be built overnight. What about labor issues, contract issues? Well, I think that there has been an increase in union activity, a lot of organization, and that's of news, news operations of all kinds. I mean, Buzz, BuzzFeed, New Yorker, unionized, and many new, uh, newspapers, especially ones that are in situations where there's been a lot of cutting, have, have unionized. And then the, the many organizations that already had a union are pressing their, their members' interests. It is unfortunately... Sort of, there's a lot of noise there, but typically the union doesn't have much control about about downsizing. That, that's a management prerogative. In the situation at Star Advertiser, it does seem like there was, you know, kind of a good faith bargaining to uh, do some trading of vacation days or salary increase uh, to preserve more jobs. So that's possible. But you know, I just take it as uh, it from a very broad view uh, as one more signal of distress. And I guess we're all hoping that someone's going to uh, put out a lifeline. <laughs> you yeah, know. well, there are a few hopeful things. And, I mean, I, I mean, I do think we see some places, though this is hardly uh, a solution, a willingness of a person or a group of wealthy people to come forward and kind of take control of the paper in the interest of the community. And we do see a lot of increases in philanthropic support for news, and that includes from the big platform companies like Facebook and Google, but but community foundations that maybe didn't have uh, journalism on their map uh, five years ago are taking a look and, and at least supporting some of it. I do think there's uh, some interest, philanthropic interest. There's also some willingness uh, for sponsorships, events, that kind of thing. Now, they've been slowed by the, the virus, uh, too. And, um, you know, overall, there's a, it's slow, but I think there is a transition to... Uh, formats and some mix of digital and print right now and, and digital in the future that, that could be workable. But but we're looking at smaller organizations and we're looking at a landscape, if you will, that, that has many elements. We're never going to see newspapers as, as dominant as they once were. And you'd mentioned that uh, in some places you were seeing community groups and uh, philanthropic organizations stepping up. 
Yes, and, and in addition to giving a promising new digital paper or a public interest uh, journalism a boost, there's some willingness now to fund uh, a reporter or fund a, a particular project at a for-profit paper. So in, in other words, to go directly to replacing some of the, the reporting efforts that the outlets are having a hard time financing themselves. I want to minimize how, how difficult it is and bad things may happen, but I, I don't think it's hopeless. That was Rick Edmonds, media business analyst for the Poitner Institute, talking about the national landscape for journalism during these trying times. And now it's time to check in with the BBC with the latest COVID news. The European Union prepares to open up its borders back up to 15 non-EU countries with some notable emissions as concrete numbers on COVID-19's impact on the world's workforce begins to emerge. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Tuesday the 30th of June. I'm Jackie Leonard. The European Union recommends the bloc's external borders reopen to 15 non-EU countries. The impact of the pandemic on the world's workforce is revealed. And doctors in Afghanistan say their healthcare system is being overrun. The European Council has recommended that from tomorrow, EU borders should be reopened to citizens from 15 non-EU countries, including Canada, Morocco and South Korea. Diplomats have spent five days debating which countries should be included on the list of so-called safe travel destinations. Gareth Barlow reports. While Algeria and Australia are on the list, Russia and the United States are not. EU officials said the decision was based on a number of scientific factors, including that the COVID-19 infection rate in the non-EU countries was below 16 infections for every 100,000 people. The decision isn't legally binding, and individual member states will need to decide whether or not to implement the policy. The state of New York has extended a 14-day quarantine to visitors from eight more U.S. states where coronavirus cases are spreading fast. Once the U.S. states worst affected by COVID-19, New York has been able to control the pandemic with only 13 deaths reported in the past 24 hours. The UK's first regional lockdown, affecting more than 300,000 people, has come into force in and around the English city of Leicester. All non-essential shops have been closed and the reopening of pubs, restaurants and hairdressers in Leicester will be delayed. And the Australian state of Victoria is reintroducing lockdown for several suburbs around Melbourne. The moves will last for four weeks. Residents will have to stay at home unless going to work, school, caregiving or essential shopping. The pandemic has led to a drop of 14% in hours worked globally, equivalent to 400 million full-time jobs, according to new analysis. The International Labour Organization, a United Nations agency, says even the most optimistic scenario for the second half of the year will not be enough to get to pre-pandemic levels of employment. Here's Andrew Walker. The loss of hours worked is largest in the Americas, where, the ILO says, there are currently the most restrictions on workers and workplaces. The impact has been especially severe in South America, where working hours declined by 20%. The report says women have been disproportionately affected. The downturn has hit service industries very hard, where many women work. Health officials in South Korea have concluded the idea of a community forming herd immunity from COVID-19 is wishful thinking. The deputy director of the Korean Center for Disease Control said the organization had come to that conclusion after analyzing both domestic and international data. The KCDC has emphasized that these are only initial findings and not conclusive at this stage. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization says it's also closely monitoring the threat posed by a new flu virus found in Chinese pigs. Researchers in China have warned that the virus has become more infectious to humans and could trigger a pandemic, although this is not likely to happen imminently. Doctors in Afghanistan have told the BBC that the country's fragile healthcare system is being overrun with coronavirus cases. One night, many patients died because there was no staff to take care of them. Their relatives even fought and broke windows in the hospital. They were very furious. According to official statistics, there have been just over 30,000 cases and fewer than 1,000 deaths. But with extremely low levels of testing, it's thought the actual figures are far higher. One leading official has said there are likely to be a million cases in the capital, Kabul, alone. Sekunder Kamani reports. Hospitals in Afghanistan have always been stretched. Now they're being overwhelmed. 
the lack of resources made even worse by another disease, corruption. I've been speaking to a number of doctors anonymously. Many are angry. Money meant for staff and equipment isn't reaching the front lines. The company behind the world's most famous acrobatic circus troupe, Cirque du Soleil, has filed for bankruptcy protection after the pandemic forced it to cancel dozens of shows in the US, Europe and Australia. Simon Hancock reports. The entertainment company, based in Canada, saw its income vanish overnight. At least six of its Las Vegas shows closed, along with dozens more across several continents. Now, most of its 4,000 performers and technicians are expected to lose their jobs in the restructuring, though the group aims to rehire as many as possible once the global lockdowns are over. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. Welcome to the telehealth revolution. There were more regulatory changes related to telehealth in the last three months than there have been in the last 20 years. What does telehealth do for health outcomes and for the trillions we spend in healthcare costs? So if I can get any part of that trillion, then I can do whatever the heck I want. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Tonight at 7, following Counterspin. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we go to a Kauai airport. The 1928 Territorial Legislature appropriated $15,000 to purchase 29 acres of land on the island south shore to build an airport. Later that year, the Territorial Aeronautics Commission met to select the site of what was to be Kauai's main airport. And in April 1929, the state received approval from the Army to use the land for commercial aviation. By November, the, the first passenger air service to and from Kauai took off. Inter-Island Airways flew on a twice-weekly schedule with fares costing $20. The following year, the U.S. Weather Bureau formed a weather reporting station there. It was the first time federal money had been used for commercial aviation in Hawaii. The airport was used by the military during World War II. While it did return to commercial travel, it was deemed too small and could not be expanded because it was located on a peninsula. Today, the airport is used for small planes and helicopters, while most inter-island travelers use the larger airport in Lehue. So what airport were we talking about? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. HPR's Ashley Mizuo joins us this morning to talk about violations to the stay-at-home orders issued back in March. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning. So what did you find out over the last couple of months? Yeah, so I looked through hundreds of pages of like the physical papers outside um, of HPD looking at their arrest logs um, to look through and see the people who were um, 
listed as violating HRS 127A, which is the emergency order violations. And so that started on March 25th. Um, and the people who violate emergency orders can face um, a misdemeanor charge carrying a maximum fine of $5,000 or a year in prison. Um, of the people arrested, um, Micronesians were disproportionately represented compared to their general population size. They made up about 26% of those um, arrested during the stay-at-home order time, even though they only make up about 1% of the state's population. Um, Josie Howard, the program director at We Are Oceania, the Micronesian Community Advocacy Group, had a few theories on why so many Micronesians were arrested. Why is it that it's Micronesians who made up the majority on that list when we have the smallest percentage of our population statewide? The three top thing I thought about is one is the gap in cultural proficiency and the lack of language and could be because they're Micronesians, they were targeted. And she also said that maybe the lack of phone and internet access may have made it more difficult for people to actually get information about COVID and what stay at home meant. Also, members of the Black and Samoan communities were also arrested, um, larger proportion to the representation in the general population. Um, black people make up only 2% of the population and yet they accounted for 6% of those arrested. Um, Samoans make up 3% of the general population, and they made up about 8% of those arrested. I mean, that, that's just so interesting. Uh, you know, when you think about the Micronesians, yeah, you're wondering, did they not get the news, you know? Do they have access to TV, you know, radio, newspapers, so they would know that, that, you know, you're not supposed to be out. Right, exactly. And Josie said that they did a really good job at trying to make it in multiple languages so it would be easier for um, more people to understand. But again, if you don't have internet or phone, that's not a viable solution, right? So who else was arrested? Um, Mateo Caballero at the American Civil Liberties Union, he looked at the data I had compiled earlier on, and he said that he was concerned that many might have been homeless, um, even though that homeless people experiencing homelessness was supposed to be exempted from the emergency order. Um, he said that I should go look through the court records and see if they had um, offenses for sit-and-lie obstruction or sidewalk obstruction, park closures, and contempt of court um, because during the daily sweeps, people will get tickets or citations, um, and then they can't show up for court for reasons like they can't, the days aren't being kept track of, or they're afraid of leaving their things alone because they're afraid that it'll be swept again. Um, and so there'll be an arrest warrant out for them, and they'll be in contempt of court, so that's another issue. Um, that you'll see on their records. So I did go through everyone who was arrested's records on eCourt Kukua, um, and I looked, and about one in five of those arrested did have those kinds of indicators in their court records. So they had sit and lie, um, sit and lie law violations or sidewalk obstruction, those sorts of things. And then of those who were had those homelessness indicators, um, about 60% of those were cited multiple times for violating the emergency orders. And one person even got cited seven different times for violating emergency orders. Um, and then um, Caballero said that even though stay-at-home arrests um, are misdemeanors, even these mi minor violations um, can trap low-income people in the criminal justice system. And if they're unable to pay like the accumulated fines, um, they can face even harsher penalties. Caballero says that this is proof that Hawaii just isn't an exception to the country's policing problems. In Hawaii, police officers discriminate in terms of where they go and how they police, and not only in terms of race, but also in terms of wealth. Even though these stay-at-home orders were supposed to be enforced across the board, and I saw a number of people of all races in all neighborhoods violating the orders, and yet Kalihi and some you know, public housing areas were more heavily enforced. Yeah, you know, I also wonder, too, about uh, the mentally ill on the street, you know, the, the number of homeless people. You know, they just are not there and may not understand uh, the severity of th that lockdown when we were that we were in. Right. And so um, I'm hoping to talk to some more advocates um, with people who uh, have been having some firsthand experience um, on the sh street um, helping those who were homeless during the emergency orders. So what did the police department think about uh, all this? Um, so when I spoke with them, they said that emergency orders um, were enforced based on public complaints and the violators' actions. Um, HPD Police Chief Susan Ballard was not made available to comment on the story, um, but the department said they'd be sticking with pre 
previous comments she's made on the subject um, during the June 17th police commission uh, meeting following the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, she said that she would consider including implicit bias training to address some unconscious attitudes um, and stereotypes within the police force, but didn't have a timeline or one that would be implemented yet. And she also added that this may be more of a mainland issue than a local one is when it comes to race. When I asked uh, if the arrest numbers of the emergency orders that I found might prompt changes in HPD's police practices, um, department spokesperson um, Michelle Yu said this. Oh, I think we're always looking for ways that we can do things better. But, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure how to respond to that question. But sure, you know, we're always re evaluating our actions and our programs. So if there's any way that we can improve it, we, we would certainly look into that. And then yesterday, um, we got a chance to speak with uh, Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell after his press conference. Um, and he said that he supported HPD's actions and thought um, that their enforcement did a bit to flatten the curve. But he did want to to better understand the demographic data. If there's cases of discrimination, whether it be intentional or not intentional, those need to be addressed and need to be looked at. And so I do support making sure that they're not purposely or even unintentionally targeting one ethnic group or another. But he said he'd be open to talking to HPD about their policing practices or how those could be adjusted if we did have a big second wave of COVID-19 and the emergency orders were kicked back in again. And so, um, gosh, I know, uh, any comment at all from, let's say, the police commission um, or other groups? In yeah, the I haven't heard um, anything from them or um, any more from HPD since. And then uh, what else will you be looking at uh, um, as far as these uh, violations? Right. Um, I'm hoping to do a little bit more, um, a deeper look into kind of how the emergency orders did affect homeless people during this time, and then also maybe um, stories on law enforcement's relationship with the community. Yeah, it'd be interesting to find out uh, how uh, maybe some of the emergency shelters uh, may have gotten the word out to their clients, you know, or if there are certain areas across the island or across the state, actually, where maybe they were seeing an uptick in the numbers. Right. Actually, um, what I did find from the arrests was there was a pretty big cluster of arrests in the Kalihi area um, specifically, and that's what um, Caballero was um, indicating towards earlier. Um, so that was one of the areas that had a big cluster. Okay, all right. And uh, I understand that the, getting that information was not easy, <laughs> doing that deep dive with, with all those uh, reports over the last several months. Right. There was a lot of physical papers. Um, HPD does put out their arrest logs on their website, but they only keep them up for two weeks at a time. They said that it's because their website just can't handle that much stuff on their website, mm -hmm. so they have to take it down. Um, so I was going through the physical papers at the station in the binder and then I had to submit an information request to get the last month's worth of it because it was it was past the time in the binders. Um, so it's just hundreds of physical papers with my eyes just looking <laughs> for that HRS 127A. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Ashley. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Ashley Mizuo about the enforcement of the stay-at-home orders that were issued back in March. To read her story, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at some internal strife within the Honolulu Fire Department. Reporter Stuart Yurton uh, joins us to talk about his story. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, wow, some of this stuff seems like it's been simmering for a while, huh? Yes, um, it has been simmering for a while, and uh, the firefighters, uh, these are rescue workers uh, specifically, have really been and pushing back and uh, opposing this, and uh, the fire chief has been trying to move ahead uh, with this um, this this idea, this plan to create a third rescue unit for for Oahu. It's a rescue command. Do we know where that might be? Might it be placed? Uh, we're not sure exactly. I think that part would would need to be worked out. Um, the two 
uh, commands they've had previously were on uh, two different parts of the island, and they've sort of moved those around, too, as as we reported, um, into quarters that the firefighters say just aren't aren't really nice and aren't weren't really designed for uh, firefighters to be you know where they live for for a week or so at a time so uh, they're really concerned about it and um, uh, again we, we've seen these they're they're trailers and moldy and you know, water damage and stuff like that. Kind of one has one's a makeshift kitchen in the basement of one of the fire stations, so it, it's really a quite a concerning situation for the for the firefighters. So, what does the chief say about the move with these commands? Because I understand that what there's some concern that there, maybe this could be thought of as retaliation for the pushback. Exactly. So, so just for background, so they have two commands now doing. Uh, rescue work here, and these are very specialized. You know, we see them a lot. We we hear about the helicopters getting people from trails, but they do other stuff too, which we can talk about. Um, so there are two. Uh, the the chief wants to set up. Chief Nevis wants to set up a third. He says they need it uh, for redundancy and uh, just to have an extra one in case the two are tied up. Um, so that that's the situation now. Uh, they, the chief says that we had to move these folks because of COVID. So they wanted to move them out of their, per, their uh, typical fire stations and, and have them more isolated to protect them because there are only two, and it makes a lot of sense. To, it could make a lot of sense to say, well, we want to keep these protected. Uh, the problem is uh, the quarters are, are, like I said, not very nice. I've seen pictures, and, and one of them was found by an environmental a consulting firm to be um, in uninhabitable because of mold, and they said you guys should move out immediately. So um, the firefighters are saying, "Look, this is retaliation for us pushing back against the the chief." So we do, do we know how long this idea has been in the planning? It, it's been in the planning for a while uh, since before the COVID situation arose. Um, so they have been, the, the chief has wanted this, um, I, I, I believe, at least since October. I know the, they haven't had train, official training uh, since October. The, the assistant chief I spoke to, uh, Chief Bratako, said that uh, they could do training on their own, uh, but they haven't had any official training since October as this idea has been starting to, to be pushed forward. Right. Uh, I, from what I understand from reading your story, that uh, the rescue captains, I mean, they're concerned about safety, right? Making sure that yes. that whoever is in this new unit is chained properly. Yes, that's exactly right. So the issue is that that they do very specialized work. They're lifting people from trails on using helicopters and ropes. They do some other things that are really, really technical, uh, confined space rescues where they have to have oxygen and uh, air quality sensors that they take with them. And uh, again, the training is very, very uh, technical. Um, it's very risky work. And the firefighters are saying, look, we need to make sure we all know what we're doing. We need to make sure everybody on a team knows what they're doing. Or somebody could, a firefighter could get killed or hurt, or a member of the public could get killed or hurt. Right, and they did have that one uh, death of the firefighter, the fire rescue, um, Cliff Rigsby, who was very well-known, and he was a veteran, but he still got killed in this uh, jet ski accident. Right, and the argument there, again, one of the captains, um, Dean Stoll, who's opposing this, you know, he was outspoken about that accident and said, look, we, we lowered the standards for firefighters doing jet skis, and that happened. He's saying we don't want the same thing to happen again if we uh, push and rush to bring on this new unit. He, he's very, very uh, outspoken, saying we, we could have the same problem again. Okay, and we understand that the, these fire rescue captains have reached out to uh, uh, council member uh, Tommy Waters to try and uh, get some relief. So we'll have to watch to see how that plays out. 
Right. So there, there is a bill. It would impose some uh, requirements on the fire chief, um, which would effectively slow this down. You'd have to come up with some policies and procedures uh, for training that would really put the put a lid on this for a while at least. Okay. Well, we'll have to watch this one. Thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Uh, read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, reopening with safety in mind on July 16th, offering reconnections to the art, courtyards, and the museum community with new weekend evening hours. HonoluluMuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Arjuna Arda, author of Better Than Sex. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the ecstatic art of awakening coaching. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from University Health Partners of Hawaii, the faculty practice of the John A. Burns School of Medicine. In-person and telemedicine services include OBGYN, speech and hearing, and surgery. UHPHawaii.org. In today's Backyard Quiz, we were looking at aviation, uh, Hawaii aviation history. In the 1930s, inter-island airways used this airport on Kauai South Shore and another in Wailua for inter-island travel. At the start of World War II, the U.S. Army took over the airport and plowed the runways to prevent possible use by the enemy. After the war, instead of restoring the airport, the Army paid the territory of Hawaii $17,500. Through the the 1950s, only two airlines actually operated there, but it was home to a number of private planes. At its peak in 1947, the airport handled nearly 37,000 passengers and more than 1,100 tons of cargo. But once Lehui Airport opened, inter-island passenger travel at Port Allen was no more. It is still open today, but it is used primarily for helicopter tours. The airport was recently in the news when a tenant, Maverick Helicopters, built an on-site restroom with a cesspool without permits. Uh, Local salt makers in Hanapepe say the cesspool would contaminate their nearby salt ponds. So congratulations to Amy from Kahului, who got our answer, Port Allen. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Waianae School Principal Ray Pikelny won $25,000 this month as part of a prestigious leadership award. This has been the 16th year that the Masayuki Tokioka Excellence in Leadership has been awarded to a public school educator. Uh, Pikelny credits her staff for their support and talked with us about how she's been able to motivate her students and school community. I was a teacher, an elementary school teacher, before I became an administrator. So I had some tricks up my sleeves for that, for dealing with that. Two very different worlds. And so you have started a number of things at that school kind of to incentivize, to do their best. So one of the big things that we have on campus is our swim store. Basically, the kids, they can go and shop using their swim dollars that they earn. And the swim dollars are, they earn it through attendance, academics, positive behaviors, act of kindness, showing that they're why not strong or contributing to their classroom. And they turn those points into dollars and we have a swim store that they can use those dollars at and they can purchase little items for themselves. And just recently we actually went live online. So the kids are like clicking, just like shopping like Amazon. And, and you know, it's important for them to learn these skills. So what does SWIM stand for? So SWIM stands for, so it's our core values that we follow, self-respect and respect for others, know that you're worth it, get involved in school, home, and community, and then having a mindset for success. So self-respect, worth it, involved, and mindset. So you're really the coach of a SWIM team. <laughs> this is our SWIM team, and it's, it's SWIM because we're Wai'anae Seahorses. So we tried to come up with, you know, just thinking about values that the kids would would be easy for the kids to understand, basically for them to, like, understand, like, ultimately we're not just growing 
you know, just people who are academically responsible, but I mean, there's some other parts to every student that we have to be mindful about. And when you try and encourage a child to get excited about learning, you know, a, a lot of times it, it involves, you know, good teachers. Coming from being a teacher, because I was a teacher out here in Makaha, I mean, I was very familiar with the lifestyle, kind of, you know, the community, what happens. So just being very mindful of that. And now as an administrator, when I'm doing interviews and I'm thinking about the people, the best fit for our kids and our community, you know, I'm always thinking about what are the needs, what are their needs, and does this person match what we think would benefit our families. But I do, in our interviews, make sure that we know who you are and who you are inside. Just kind of following it up with what do you know about the community, because that's probably the most important thing that we find is that people know something about the community and really want to contribute to building that. Right, you want a good fit. Yes has to be a good fit. Wainai Coast is one of the, I mean, all the schools on the coast from Wainai to Nanakuli, from Makaha to Nanakuli is a heart-to-staff, and they do offer a heart-to-staff bonus to teachers who are working in this community. But I'm going to say that the bonus doesn't keep people here. We still see some turnover, and it's not, it's definitely not as high as it used to be, but I'm not sure if we totally attribute that to the bonus, because I feel like once you work in Wainai and There's just a feeling you feel you have to come back. You're doing it for the kids. There's, I mean, you grow this like just this natural need to come back and serve. So I don't know how much of that is the bonus, but yes, a bonus does still come with working in a hard to staff area like Waianae. Now, if I recall, at one time your old school Makaha didn't they have like a a garden or a farm? Yep. They do, and they still have that garden. Uh, Well, it's a farm. They still have that farm there. We partner with them. They had come over to support us in getting our garden started as well. So they were one of our partners. We went over and visited, and there were so many things to learn. And a lot of what I carried here came from doing things as a teacher project uh, in the garden at Makaha. What was the name of the garden? Uh, Hoaina o Makaha. The the whole idea of bringing back the garden and the cultural components that we can have the kids focus on as well as, like, getting the kids to see, like, you know, how to take care of something and how to take care of something long-term and see, you know, reap the benefits of that. It teaches them different things, yeah. They're, they're working amongst a, a bunch of other students, their peers and teachers, and learning using their hands, and it's so different from the traditional uh, teaching in four walls. So, and our kids, if there's one thing we know about them is they love working with their hands, and they learn a lot faster when they're working through something by seeing and touching and doing so the garden has brought a lot of you know just that kind of life and even them you know like they learn how to create recipes that include the healthy things that they're growing in the garden we're hoping that one day we are able to build some entrepreneurship around that and we were hoping to we what we had an idea about was the pickling seahorse where we'd grow some vegetables in the garden and then the students would you know come up with business plans for entrepreneurship where we sell it we vend I don't know how else to, like, celebrate the things that happen here. The things that happen here, like, I think people don't realize just, like, what a gem this Waianae Elementary is, like, just in the middle of Waianae, and we receive students from all over. I mean, this award, I mean, it, it definitely highlighted all the things that the staff contributes to, you know, the, the after-school programs that they run, the Saturday things that we do in the garden, we run, you know, our, our parent nights and just seeing the numbers of people getting involved in the activities at our school grow, you know, like from single digits to we're in triple digits and the, the coordination with, you know, like people just wanting to come out and help us, uh, the partnerships that we have. I see those things as just like really all building towards this bigger thing of getting the kids to be where they need to be academically, but all of these kind of core things need to happen and we need to build it. And it just, it, it involves so many people and, you know, so many moving parts. We can dream bigger, we can do bigger things, and we can, you know, we can access more. I mean, at the end of the day, I just, my goal is to make sure, like, what we send up to the intermediate and what goes up from the intermediate to the high school really, like, it, it sets kids up for accessing whatever opportunities that are out there. So what do you get to use the money for? Uh, we are going to open a credit union on campus using actually the swim, so the swim dollars, the swim points. 
So when we first started the swim dollars system, we had these paper these paper swim dollars, and the students go into the store and they have to pay, and it just takes a really long time to get through it. And the kids sometimes they misplace it, etc. So we decided, well, what better way to kind of use the idea that we already have on campus and build that system instead of starting something totally new? And we're gonna do the credit union and the kids can learn money management about finances, about depositing and having a savings account and a checking account and long-term financial planning. We're hoping that these activities also just promoting financial literacy in general and then students and parents who come in to come to the workshops because we do want to partner. We have two two people in mind that we want to partner with to start our, help us start a credit union. And basically, parents would come in as well to do some financial workshops, and the students could earn money, swim dollars, swim points, reading, you know, like they could be in another room reading, etc. So it's kind of integrating literacy and financial literacy together and touching both just the students and the families. I mean, the idea is to get them to frame around independence, financial independence at an early age so they can stabilize their own habits and you know, create habits actually that support stabilizing their income. We have a ways to go, but we're gonna keep on trekking. Keep on swimming. <laughs> That's right, keep on swimming. And that was one elementary school principal, Ray Pekelney, who this month won the Masayuki Tokioka Leadership Award for Excellence. Go Seahorses. Wraps it up for today. Tomorrow we hear more about the vacation rental agreement that Kauai has struck with Expedia. What else could be on the horizon? We'd like to hear from you. Have a concern or question about vacation rentals or maybe your loved one, maybe they happen to be in a care home or a long-term care facility or retirement community during these COVID times. What are your concerns? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.